0: Hello to all my fellow Americans, which is just a pet name I give to anybody who listens to this podcast, you don't actually have to be an American to listen to this. My name is Duncan and this is Better Than Washington, the podcast where we review presidents in a comparison-based context. We'll see who was good, who was bad, and who got a C in all their classes. Today is part two of our review of George Washington's seventh and next-to-final year as president, April 1st, 1795 to March 31st, 1796. We've already talked about his diplomacy, economics, and war scores for the year, and so today we'll look at the other remaining metrics to figure out if George Washington can once again be better than Washington. Or better than himself, but you know what I mean. The next score on the list to figure out if George Washington is in fact better than himself is to talk about how he handles civil rights this year. Honestly, it's not great this year for that score. The Treaty of Greenville led to the removal of Native Americans from lands they had a right to live in, thereby endangering their lives and ignoring their basic human rights. And as we'll routinely reference for nations where it applies, such as the Lenape that I keep going back to, this is the second or even third time that they have had to abandon their homes at gunpoint. And all of this is to satiate the greed of some European Americans. As we mentioned last week, not every single white United States citizen wanted Western expansion, at least not in the manner that the United States chose to pursue it genocide. So the whole situation was wrong. There's no denying that, and there's also no denying that Washington, who would only treat indigenous Americans as people if they followed his definition of civilization, was only willing to use the removal of First Nations for the Western Confederacy. So he didn't care about his neighbor's inalienable human rights, and we could list all the other things that we've listed many times before, such as him participating in slavery him not viewing women as needing rights, things like that. The complete unwillingness to imagine that gay people exist, let alone that gay people should exist, just all of it's bad. So normally, since we're seeing evidence of Washington actively engage in genocidal actions by ratifying the Treaty of Greenville and employing American Indian removal, this should be a year where you get negative three. However... Per our discussion of the Yazoo land frauds, Washington did have an investment in not starting new conflicts with some societies of Native Americans. While he was approving genocide in the Northwest Territory, he was preventing it by not allowing Georgia and greedy land companies in Georgia to try and purchase or take lands from the Cherokee, Muskegee, Chickasaw and Choctaw. Sure, the motives were not altruistic at all, and they would be undone in future generations. Washington was just trying to buy time between the next war and now. Still, for the moment, there are a few more lives that Washington is refusing to take. And again, this is a comparison based podcast, and we take what small, tiny, insignificant changes and nuances we can here. The conflict against the Yazoo Act is not enough to overcome the Treaty of Greenville, but I think I am safe in moving the negative three we discussed to a negative two. Washington was still a civil rights failure overall, but we can recognize the pittance of effort he put into human rights. We'll save the negative three for years where he just completely and utterly devotes himself to destroying civil rights. Our final score for the year is integrity, and part of George Washington's integrity is whether he made a good choice in appointing people. He had another critical appointment to make this year as well, a new Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. We have talked about how critical John Jay was as Chief Justice and the top negotiator of the Jay Treaty. However, there was another job he wanted, Governor of New York, and he got it when he won the gubernatorial election in May of 1795. In order to assume that role, he had to resign from the Supreme Court a month later on June 29th. Now, Washington had to find someone who could rise to that same level. Washington's first choice was Associate Justice John Rutledge, to whom he gave the recess appointment role on August 12th. Rutledge had all the responsibilities of the Chief Justice until the Senate reconvened to help the President find a new, official Chief Justice. Now, to be clear, Washington had hoped that the Senate would just pick Rutledge, Or rather, they would let him confirm Rutledge, not just as a recess appointment, but as the full time person. Sadly, that never happened because Rutledge couldn't keep his mouth shut. On July 16th, Rutledge gave a speech that openly denounced the Jay Treaty, his predecessor's legacy. The Federalists in Congress and the presidential cabinet tore him apart with partisan political attacks. By the time his formal nomination came up on December 10th, Fabricated rumors of alcoholism and insanity were so rampant that the Senate refused to nominate him. Rutledge kept the recess appointment, but Washington had to find a new guy and he had to do it fast. That timeline accelerated when Rutledge, after surviving a suicide attempt, resigned from the Supreme Court on December 28th. He was the Chief Justice for merely 138 days, and again, it was a recess appointment, so Historians seem to include him as a chief justice, but technically the title wasn't officially his. So Washington's second choice was Oliver Ellsworth, a senator representing... Wow, I can't pronounce words today. A senator representing Connecticut. A Federalist himself, Ellsworth had way more support than Rutledge ever had, even before Johnny ran his mouth. He was confirmed easily by the Senate, and he began serving as Chief Justice on March 8, 1796. Ellsworth was a critically important choice. He would end up defining some constitutional limits on both presidential authority and ex post facto laws during the Adams presidency. However, we shouldn't minimize the impact that Rutledge had for those 138 days. On August 22nd, 1795, the Supreme Court heard arguments for the United States v. Peters and made their decision on Talbot v. Janssen. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you guys. I tried reading the actual decision for United States v. Peters on the Library of Congress website. And I still have no idea what the case was about or why Richard Peters, a federal district judge, was put against the United States. However, Wikipedia tells me that the Supreme Court decision established that the federal courts could not hold jurisdiction over foreign privateers unless said privateer operated within an area that the court already had jurisdiction. So I guess that's a good thing? Talbot v. Jansen was a little more straightforward. William Talbot, an American who immigrated to France and began working as a privateer, had captured a Dutch vessel owned by Eust Jansen. Juiced Jansen, not sure how to pronounce that. I'm going to go with Eust Jansen, just outside of Charlestown, South Carolina. Naturally, Jansen tried to sue Talbot in an American court for violating the president's proclamation of neutrality. The Dutch Republic and the Netherlands were allied with Britain against France, after all. Well, at least they were, but now they weren't because they surrendered to the French. uh, Complicated, but still, violation. Talbot then filed an appeal, claiming that since he was now a French citizen, he was no longer an American citizen and therefore hadn't violated a darn thing. He was a French man doing French man things. Jansen filed another appeal, claiming that, no, actually, Talbot was totally an American citizen because he was born in America and used to be American before he went to France, and therefore did violate neutrality. This cycle of, yes you did, no you didn't, continued until it hit the Supreme Court. Thus, Rutledge and the others ruled that the Supreme Court had the jurisdiction on the seas, which I guess works with United States v. Peters, but also stated that Talbot, despite becoming a French citizen, could have still retained his American citizenship. Therefore, completely inconsequential, or not inconsequential, completely incidental to the actual matter at hand, the Supreme Court basically legalized multiple citizenships. So if you're an actual literal American, but you also have citizenship to another country, you can thank Rutledge for that. It wasn't just a Chief Justice who had to be found on the Supreme Court as well. On October 25, 1795, Associate Justice John Blair Jr. retired from the Supreme Court. On the following January 26, Washington found his replacement in Samuel Chase, who would begin his service the very next day. He was an experienced lawyer who served two terms as the Chief Justice of Baltimore's District Criminal Court, and he leveraged that experience well during his time on the Supreme Court. However, his real legacy will show up in 1803 when President Thomas Jefferson, for largely partisan political reasons, tried to have him impeached. Chase's case, besides being a fun tongue twister, created some important, if informal, precedents that maintained the independence of the federal judiciary, which allowed the Supreme Court to make incredibly important decisions throughout the history of the United States. Ellsworth and Chase each had a chance to prove themselves between February 23rd and March 8th, when the Supreme Court heard arguments for, and then decided on, Hilton v. United States. For context, Congress had passed a law in 1794 that created a tax for individuals and businesses that owned one or more carriages. Anyone or anything in that category had to pay a fine of $16 for each carriage in their possession. Sorry, not fine. Tax. Remember your words, Duncan. A gentleman named Daniel Hilton refused to pay that fee and was now being sued by the federal government. I honestly don't see the big deal is, so let me double check that. I mean, he only owned like two or three carriages, right? 125 carriages? And they were all for personal use? Geez, this guy was like Kenneth Copeland. Anyways, during his trial, Hilton's defense argued that the direct tax was unconstitutional, as it did not follow the population-based apportionment rules laid out in the Constitution. However, the Supreme Court did not agree with Danny Hiltz. See, the apportionment rule applies to direct taxes, and there is a distinction between direct taxes and taxes that would be considered duties, imposts, and excises. These kinds of fees would instead have to follow the uniformity rule of that same clause. The tax had to be applied at the exact same rate across every region and situation in the United States. For the matter at hand, a tax on consumable good, including 125 carriages, was not to be considered a direct tax. Daniel Hilton owed them $400 for his chariots. Actually, since the government successfully made him pay his taxes, I guess Hilton is not that similar to Kenneth Copeland after all. Washington made three great choices on the Supreme Court. Sadly, two-thirds of his choices for his cabinet were not as wise. For the first half of 1795... Secretary of State Edmund Randolph was tasked with helping maintain friendly relations with France by communicating with French Minister Joseph Fauchet. This was in the direct aftermath of the Jay Treaty, so Washington was really leaning on Randolph and Fauchet to help France cool off and be less angry with the United States. Unfortunately for Randolph, the British Navy intercepted some letters Fauchet had written to the French government. Then, after reading those letters, they sent them to George Washington. I can only assume Washington was stopped in an alley by a dude in a trench coat and a fedora who cryptically said, You're gonna wanna read this. And read them, Washington did. When reporting on the situation in the United States, Fauche seemed to imply that Randolph had smack-talked the presidential cabinet. Specifically, Fauche made it seem like Randolph told him, that the president's men were endlessly fighting each other and that the cabinet was too hostile to France for reasonable negotiation, which is the exact opposite message Washington wanted to send. To say that Washington was livid would be an understatement. Randolph had already been providing negative advice regarding how to implement and whether to even approve the Jay Treaty. This had been coded as a cautious approach to international affairs. Now, Foch's allegations made those objections seem like mean-spirited francophilia. Washington completely overruled Randolph's objections and gave the J-Treaty his full support, thereby allowing the treaty to go into effect on February 29th, 1796. Then, on August 20th, 1795, after presenting Foch's letter to Randolph, In front of all the other cabinet members, Washington demanded an explanation from Randolph for what was written on those pages. Instead, Randolph resigned on the spot. So now Washington had to fill the role of Secretary of State. To serve as the acting Secretary of State, he chose Timothy Pickering, the guy who's going to screw over John Adams and attempt to make New England start a civil war. We've talked about what a bad choice he is in previous episodes. But then, on December 10th, Washington chose the actual, formal, permanent Secretary of State. Still Timothy Pickering. it George! But what's even worse is that Pickering's lateral move now created a need for a new Secretary of War. On January 26th, the role was filled by James McHenry, a military surgeon and Maryland state delegate. McHenry wasn't that great either, but at least he wasn't the same kind of trash fire that Pickering is. During the rest of the Washington presidency, McHenry helped grow and reorganize the United States Army, and he oversaw the transfer of Great Britain's Northwest Territory forts to American hands. Then, during the Adams presidency, he will strongly suggest that the new United States Navy deserves its own department rather than just be another facet of the War Department. This will lead to the creation of both the Department of the Navy and, with it, the Secretary of the Navy. These were definitely positive developments, so we definitely can't take those accomplishments away from McHenry. However, he will also participate in a conspiracy against President John Adams alongside Pickering and Oliver Wolcott. And then on top of that, even though most people found him personally likable... McHenry developed a reputation of administrative incompetence among Washington, Hamilton, and Wolcott, so he wasn't the worst, but he is pretty far from the best. However, Washington still had one more choice to make, and this one was much less complicated. On December 10th, the same day he gave Pickering the keys to the kingdom, he also appointed Charles Lee to replace the tragically deceased William Bradford as Attorney General. Before becoming an AEG, Lee was one of the most prolific private practice lawyers in the state of Virginia. As Attorney General, he would end up being one of John Adams' most reliable cabinet members. He fulfilled his role effectively, such as when he represented the government as the plaintiff in Hilton v. United States and he made sure that political differences did not get in the way of his duties. So, Washington had one last good choice in him after all. These choices are going to be the bulk of George Washington's integrity score for the year. However, there is one last choice to consider. On March 20th, George Washington played partisan politics when he refused to turn over documents to the House of Representatives. See, the House was trying to launch an investigation into the constitutionality of the Jay Treaty, which, just to be clear, had already been signed by John Jay, approved by the U.S. Senate, and ratified by the President. Washington completely refused, claiming that the Jay Treaty had met all constitutional requirements and invoking executive privilege to not turn over the documents. Regarding Congress, only the Senate gets to have the say in the treaty-making process, and Washington basically just reiterated that fact. Now let's be clear. The investigation was a partisan attack by the House of Representatives, which had become a breeding ground for the Democrat-Republican Party, and it was a partisan attack against a piece of law supported by the Federalist Party. After all, John Jay is a Federalist, and Washington clearly fired back along those same lines. However, just because his intentions were mostly about party identity does not mean that his argument is wrong, nor that he didn't have an ulterior motive. The Constitution is very clear about how a treaty gets made. The president appoints someone to go negotiate the terms of the treaty. The treaty, as established by those terms, is reviewed by the Senate. The Senate can only approve the treaty with a two thirds majority vote, and then the president must ratify the treaty after approval. The president may advise the Senate on the circumstances in which they would ratify the treaty, but that influence is not as ironclad as it may sound. The Jay Treaty, regardless of popularity, past every single one of those benchmarks. Trying to launch an investigation into it would do nothing but bog down its ability to be enforced. And considering that one of the two political parties in America was trying to pick a fight with Britain just for their own weird ideals, it needed to be enforced now. Partisan or not, Washington made the right call to use executive privilege and constitutional argumentation to avoid the attack by the House of Representatives. All in all, we finally have a good year for integrity after three straight years of whiskey rebellion nonsense dragging the score down. Pickering and McHenry aside, I think a positive one is a little unfair, so I'm just going to split the difference between that and the positive three I briefly considered. George Washington gets a positive two for integrity this year. And also, we don't have to spend too much time on bipartisanship. He avoided bad bipartisanship with the whole House investigation thing we just talked about, and he didn't have too many opportunities to foster good bipartisanship, but that doesn't mean he's not looking out for his political opponents. Remember, Pinckney's treaty allowed the impoverished farmers the Jeffersonian Republicans were obsessed with to sell their products in a new, fair market. They had a chance to grow that wasn't there before. That chance would not have happened without Washington giving the go-ahead. Sure, the hardcore Jeffersonian Republicans like, well, Thomas Jefferson, are still sour on Washington and his ideas. However, other members of that party started to chill out a bit. I feel confident in giving Washington a bonus positive 1 for bipartisanship just because he seemed to navigate those waters well this year. And so we conclude this year of George Washington's presidency. Where does that leave our current score? Well, we started with a negative 2 for economy, but that bounces out with a positive 2 for diplomacy. Then we get a positive 3 for war, a negative 2 for civil rights, a positive 2 for integrity, and a positive 1 for bipartisanship. Hey, that's another 4! Another 4 positive for George Washington. And honestly, even if I hadn't gone easy on him for civil rights and just went with that negative 3, Washington would still be looking at a positive 3 for the final year. And that's still better than last year's Washington. Alright, let's cool down with some extra history facts. Again, not calling them fun facts anymore because I keep running into not fun facts. On October 10th, a restaurateur named Samuel Francis dies. Again, not fun facts anymore. He was famous because he was both a spy and a caretaker of prisoners of war during the American Revolution, so he did a lot to support the patriot cause. He later served as the steward of both presidential residences, the one in New York and then the one in Philadelphia, until his death. But if you happen to believe in reincarnation, you'll be happy to know that a boy was born just a month later, on November 2nd. His name is James Knox Polk, and he will grow up to be the future 11th President of the United States. And then a month after that, on December 10th, another baby boy is born. His name is Matthias W. Baldwin and he will grow up to be one of the most successful locomotive manufacturers in the world. He will use some of that wealth and power to advocate for the abolitionist cause, which kind of helps make up for the westward expansion he fueled. And on January 5th, while serving the state of Connecticut, Samuel Huntington becomes the first United States governor to die in office. That was like a reverse compliment sandwich, like, we started bad, got happy, went bad. That is it for this episode. My fellow Americans, thank you for listening to Better Than Washington. My name is Duncan, and I will see you all next time. Better Than Washington uses the song Americana by Mr. Smith under a fair use attribution license. You can find this song and other works by Mr. Smith at the Free Music Archives, freemusicarchives.org. If you want to support the podcast, please give it a like and leave as many stars as you can on a review on whichever podcast platform you're using right now. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Van Washington with a capital T and a capital W. If you really like the podcast, you can also sign up to give monthly donations at anchor.fm slash better than Washington. Also, if you want to fact check me, I do my preliminary research on Wikipedia and then use resources that pop up online through Google search to corroborate select claims. For this episode, resources I used include the actual decision on United States v. Peters, which I found on the Library of Congress website, and on supreme.justia.com. And I also read a couple articles about Hilton v. United States on oyez.org, Library of Congress website, and the Library of Congress website again, actually. I uh, found two links regarding the Hilton v. United States verdict there. And then finally, I read an extra article about Talbot v. Jansen from law.cornell.edu. All of those links will be in the show notes below. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks again for listening. Farewell for now.